Hello everyone and welcome back to ECFR's Russia podcast. Titled The Overcoat, we refer to Kogol in our Russia discussions. Kogol's Overcoat is a classical short story in Russian literature describing the dilemmas of a lower-level clerk in um, his attempt to make it in the Russian system. And we decided that this is a fitting title for us, given that we are trying to discuss many different aspects of Russian life and politics, um, starting from those our fellows are working on. And that is why today's podcast is dedicated to Orthodox Church. That is the speciality of our visiting fellow, Xenia Luchenko, who joins us today. Hello, Xenia. Hello, Kadri. And we have also been joined by um, Alexander Agajanian, a professor from Yerevan University right now. But up until last year, you worked in Russia. Hello, Alexander. Hello. Thank you for inviting. So the intention today is to discuss the role the Orthodox Church has in Russia's war against Ukraine, um, but also a historical relationship between uh, church and state in Russia. Because what we are seeing right now uh, at Orthodox Church and how it's supporting the state in its war effort, that is nothing new. Uh, that is, is not something that emerged overnight even though um, sort of enthusiastic support the church seems to be giving to the state uh, is maybe going to greater lengths than, than one has seen for a long time with priests blessing missiles and, and so forth. But Xenia, maybe let's start with you. Uh, tell us how you see it. How do you see what church is doing in the context of a war and and why? Why are they doing it? Why have they positioned themselves the way they have? Well, I would say that Petrarch Kirill has completely um, conflated the fate of the Russian Orthodox Church with the Putin's regime. Um, that's the main problem, I would say. Um, according to Levada Center polls, the last uh, independent uh, survey center, the church is um, consistently in fourth place among institutions trusted by Russian citizens. Uh, after the president, the army, the FSB, and the government. The next one is the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, so, um, but according to the most optimistic estimates, for example, uh, by the data of the Pew Research Center, uh, no more than 6% of the Russian population comes to Sunday worship. For example, in Ukraine, it's 12%. Um, so, <clears throat> but more than a half of Russians culturally identify themselves with orthodoxy. So that's the, I think that's the problem, uh, that uh, the political weight of the church as an institution 
is much greater than its real influence on society. Um, there is virtually no correlation between these two factors. Russians rarely explain their personal decisions, their life with a church, Christian motivation. And they rarely think of the church uh, at all when they do need to get married, to have a, um, they think about the church only when they need to get married or to have a funeral or to baptize a child and so on. Uh, and the political role can be explained by the fact that the church, including the special orthodox visual and verbal style, which turns any content, any thesis into traditional, historically Russian sacred, is rather an effective medium uh, than a religious, uh, than a religion. Um, in this case, we can also explain the fact that when people say Russian Orthodox Church, they mean only bishops and the patriarchy staff, in a sense, the totality of the clergy, but never the laity, never the people. The church is those uh, dressed in long dresses um, men uh, who provide uh, some sacral uh, meanings to all that the state uh, does. Uh, that's the situation um, that could be the situation uh, could be described like this, and the patriarch is completely um, for this war. I, from the very beginning, he said in the sermon in the beginning of the March of uh, twenty two that he supports uh, Putin's invasion in Ukraine, and. Um, there are even uh, new, uh, so we can say, new rights of uh, blessing the, the recruits during their mobilization. Um, <clears throat> they, um, there, are, there are a lot of videos, video recording, photos uh, in different regions during the enlistment into the army. Priests bless those who go to the front. They spray holy water, distribute crosses, icons, prayer books, uh, and so on. They say farewell words. This priest participation has become part of the ritual of going to war. Uh, it's a new rite of passage in Russia. Um, so many priests post photos of the recruits on social media and write messages supporting the Russian army. Priests Parishes collect humanitarian aid. Uh, they collect money to send them to the front. Children write postcards to soldiers and so on. They so sort <laughs> of cosplay the World War II you know, with writing those postcards and sending uh, some parcels to our brave soldiers. And that happens all this uh, a year and a half that the war lasts. So the situation could be described like this, I think. Thank you. Alex, do you have anything to add? And and why is that? Why why has the church positioned itself like that? First of all, I would agree with uh, all these descriptions. Uh, uh, I would add probably that um, in, uh, in today's Russia, like uh, uh, however with many other countries, there is a kind of a uh, distinction between the private... Uh, uh, the 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 the, uh, uh, the 
public and the private persona of a religious institution. You know, there is a public uh, 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 importance and public claims to uh, uh, to really represent the uh, the Russian identity or the Russian state. You know, this kind of stuff. While at the level, as Senia said. Uh, at the level of kind of private religiosity, is very, it, it may be very low in many, not not very significant. It's a normal situation. You can find that this, this situation in many other uh, uh, societies, by the way. Uh, 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 the, this is the uh, the first thing. Okay, this distinction between the two is quite understandable. It uh, uh, relates to what's uh, uh, the... the uh, the results of the secularization, the results of the, uh, the new trends of the reemergence of the public religion as a special, you know, type of religion, not very much connected with uh, the real uh, grassroots religiosity. Uh, now, another question is why uh, uh, that uh, uh, that you are asking why the uh, church, the leadership of the church, supported. Putin's regime and supported the war in such a way. And uh, uh, here, yes, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's the story of the last uh, maybe 15, 20 years when there was a, from, actually from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the, uh, 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 the, the, uh, the, the current patriarch was very close to the uh, uh, political inst- establishment that have been formed, that has been formed under uh, Putin. Um, in uh, in the year 2000s, and then after he became patriarch in 2009, uh, uh, this kind of alliance, this kind of uh, close relationship, uh, uh, were becoming even more uh, evident. And uh, um, uh, another thing is that the uh, Kirill is a type uh, of uh, um, church leader that uh, created his own kind of authoritarian power within the church parallel so the the the, uh, the authoritarian uh, re- uh, reconstruction of the church was in uh, parallel with the authoritarian reconstruction of the uh, political regime in Russia so that was the two parallel processes and they were very very close uh, to each other and uh, uh, also, I would say, I would say that Kirill's uh, own personality is uh, uh, has to be uh, somehow taken into account as uh, uh, a, a a reason of this kind of relationship. So, um, from from the very beginning, it's kind of it, it was a kind of authoritarian leader. In in uh, in the uh, he he uh, he changed very much his. Uh, 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 the church, the bishops, the uh, 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 the priests, uh, uh, he made this kind of reforms. And then at the same time, ideologically, from the very beginning, he was moving from a kind of a, uh, you know, uh, rationalized pr- pr- pragmaticism to a more and more to a kind of uh, uh, symphony type Symphonia type uh, alliance uh, between the church and the state, and we can uh, actually see this evolution in his writings. That, uh, you know, for example, I have studied for for a couple of decades. 
since he started um, being prominent in the public sphere. So that's all this uh, uh, various re reasons uh, came together on when 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 the war started, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm not surprised. I'm not at all surprised that Xenia uh, was not with uh, this kind of alliance and support of the war. Thanks, Alec. Yes. I could also add maybe that uh, Petrar Kirill still considers the church as the church of empire. It's the church of Russian empire and even of the Soviet Union because it was uh, the structure of Moscow Petrarchate was created by Stalin in 1943. And so uh, this uh, class of bishops, of those who rule the church, they consider themselves as the Church of Soviet Union and of the former Russian Empire. And both post-Soviet patriarchs, Alexei and Kirill, ignored the new political reality, as if the Soviet Union um, was had not been uh, destroyed. Uh, so for them, the entire canonical territory of the Russian Orthodox Church remained a unified Orthodox space and area of their responsibility of their power, of uh, their authority, any attempts to change that were extremely unwelcome, as we see on the example of the Ukrainian church. And so the only way to preserve this unity uh, are Putin's tanks, uh, Putin's uh, you know, weapons uh, now. So that's on also one of the reasons why Petrarch supports Putin, maybe even unconsciously, because uh, he lost the Ukrainian church, he now loses the Latvian church. Um, there are big problems in Moldova, for example, because they also want to be no more uh, in, um, uh, no, they don't want to depend from the Russian Orthodox Church to be part of it. Uh, and the only way to preserve it is the power of Russian state and the violence, the state violence that this uh, state, state provides. That's the reason. But that was not necessarily like that when it started, or in a way Kirill, I think, has made a U-turn in how he positions himself. Um, because I remember when Crimea was annexed in 2014 and there was that big ceremony in the Kremlin, and actually, Kirill was not there. He didn't turn up, and we all interpreted that as a sign that he was worried about uh, Orthodox believers in Ukraine, and um, he sort of wanted to keep low profile on annexation issue, and hence he was not there. And and now he has made a U-turn, yeah, by by supporting the war. Of course, between 2014 and 22, uh, the Ukraine, uh, I mean, Ukraine got its own autocephalic church, so church situation in Ukraine also changed somewhat. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I think there has been some change of strategy. Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that it was uh, a kind of a pragmatic, uh, careful uh, approach in the beginning uh, in uh, 2014 during the Crimea crisis, and then in even 
in the in the very beginning of 2022, the the uh, the, uh, the full scale war uh, uh, that started last year, uh, <clears throat> on on the 24th of February, he made a kind of a uh, prayer, saying that kind of carefully, uh, saying that the Lord will save the Russian Ukra- and Ukrainians and offer people specifically, uh, 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 yeah, and, and other people specifically involved in this, uh, uh, kind of involved, all the people that are spiritually united within the church. And he was praying for peace. And then uh, in the next day or in, in a couple of days after that, he made a very careful appeal to the Metropolitan Nofri, who was, and he still is, the, the head of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which is a part, uh, well, formally, was formally, was formally, at that point, a part of the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. It was very careful. He said that, um, uh, uh, yeah, we, uh, we hope, and I hope, that Metropolitan Anufri and I would uh, settle this issue because we have this spiritual unity and things like that. And at the same time, he included in the first for the, for the first time this idea of the third party of the yeah of the foreign agents that are kind of trying to dissolve the unity of this Russian world, which unites uh, three Slavic people, Eastern Slavic people, actually. Uh, uh, but I agree uh, with Xenia that in his mind uh, there, there is a kind of a shadow empire that is still there, including all other places, all other uh, post-Soviet countries. That's that's true. So he was careful in the beginning, but then in uh, you know in in the course of time, after a, a few months, he openly, uh, of course, openly supported. Um, uh, the war with all this uh, malevolence, with all these prayers and uh, um, uh, sermons and things like that. So he probably was trying to be pragmatically careful in the beginning, but uh, uh, actually uh, uh, he ended up with uh, uh, full support. Yeah. To me, of course, it seems totally counterproductive. I mean, as a patriarch, you can have religious authority outside your own country as well, but that requires a different kind of of, of mindset and, and positioning. I mean, look at look at the authority that I don't know Constantinople patriarch has in in many other countries, or you know, yeah, Pope Francis, or well. Dalai Lama, he does not have a country at all, but he's revered by many people all over the world. But, but of course, that I think has roots in the fact that they truly serve religion as opposed to the state. I must say, I, I. <laughs> My experiences with Orthodox Church actually made me think a lot about Dalai Lama and, and thinking that maybe Buddhism actually benefited, benefited from Tibetans losing the country uh, in the sense that now Buddhism is the only thing Dalai Lama can focus on. He doesn't have a state. Um, 
that's a big loss as well because you know China has destroyed many of the monasteries, many of the relics, etc. But in in some sense, I mean, you you could see the silver lining. And I remember when I started thinking about it, that was actually after my trip to monastery in uh, Bechore, that is next to Estonian border, and that is important monastery in the sense that this is one of the few that never stopped working even during Stalinist time because at the height of Stalinist uh, crimes against religion, it belonged to Estonia and and it could keep working. So Estonia still has somewhat special, at least historical connection to the place. And I had always wanted to visit. So we went with a friend from Estonia in the summer of 2014. So that was already a tense time after annexation of Crimea and my friend was a diplomat. She had meetings agreed also in the city government. And I remember how she discussed that, well, I'm not worried about the monastery. The monastery will tell us about religion and God and we will be fine. No worries there. But maybe in the city government, people feel themselves a bit awkwardly that you know, there are visitors coming from a NATO country and we should... We should, we should think how to behave with them. Actually, everything was exactly vice versa. At the monastery, we were received by a young monk from, uh, from I think, was he from Voronezh? Or maybe, yeah. In any case, he hated Ukrainians ever since a Ukrainian had thrown him with, an, with a half-eaten apple when he was 12 years old. Uh, and then he was convinced that Americans wanted to have military bases in Crimea. They wanted to destroy Christianity, etc., etc. So we got a full-blown political lecture at the monastery. Uh, thankfully, we also got excursion of the caves, so that was, that was still good. But it was very politicized. At the same time, the lady from the city government was a true Orthodox believer who had moved from St. Petersburg to Pechora in order to be closer to the monastery. A bright-eyed, nice person who told us about relics of saints, uh, caves, holy springs, uh, religion. Mm. That was quite something. And it was a special trip in the sense that there really was something religious about the place. I I think I had the feeling that people have in mind when they say they felt closeness of God, some kind of thing. But that thing had nothing to do with Orthodox institutions and everything to do with the simple people. Also, the lady who was selling cabbage pies at Oldisborsk, we asked where the Holy Springs are and how to pray there. My friend with whom I visited, she was a true Orthodox believer. She asked if she can say her prayers in Estonian. And that old lady selling a pie said, that, oh, of course you can. The God will understand. The God even understands American language. Can you imagine? That was also bright, friendly and lovely. And yet the monastery was out of sync with that mood. So after that, I remember I was sitting in a parking lot in Pskov and, and thinking deeply about the path different churches have 
taken in their relationship with, um, with the state. Xenia, I think you can come in with your commentaries or a story of your oh. uh, Well, <laughs> I just, um, there are a lot of uh, things to say about this um, very representative story that you have told us. Uh, because Pichora is a special place uh, where um, uh, Metropolitan Tihon Shevkunov served for, uh, well, some last five, I, I think, years. Yeah. And it, My visit was before Shevkunov, though. Yes, but he was... Um, he was there always because it was his uh, monastery. He grew, grew up there as an Orthodox Christian. So <laughs> that's uh, that's why this is a, a special place uh, because um, there were always uh, a lot of conspiracy and they always supported all those... Uh, all those uh, theories about uh, how the West is dangerous and the, how the Holy Rus uh, will be the, how we say it, in, in, in Greek is a concept uh, that only Russia will save the world when the um, Antichrist, and how we say it, in uh, Antichrist um, comes. So as a journalist, I traveled to the Urals in the fall of uh, 2020 during the pandemic. There was a monastery of Shigumen uh, Sergius Romanov. Um, and there were some of journalistic investigations because he had been in charge of different monastery uh, monasteries in Urals for 20 years. Uh, and all these uh, monasteries were a real sect that he was the, the head of. But until 2020, um, when he started uh, recording and posting on YouTube sermons against the coronavirus, uh, where he condemned Putin and Petrarch personally, no one was interested in, uh, in this. And... After that, uh, it turned out that the children were abused in the orphanage at his monastery for years, that there was a hospice where prayers were given instead of pain relief, and so on. Uh, but he was uh, persecuted only for extremism in his sermons, not for abusing people, um, because other way his bishop and some other priests of the diocese would be accused uh, and prosecuted as well because he, everybody in Urals knew what was uh, happening, what was going on in his monasteries for years. And nobody did nothing until he became a sort of QAnon, um, QTuber, <laughs> and um, he raised against Putin because of the pandemic uh, measures. Uh, that's also a very uh, good illustration of what is happening in Russian Orthodox Church. Now he's uh, condemned and he is uh, uh, in um, colony, I, I think, for seven years. So, And the monastery is just um, 
they changed the name, the consecration of the monastery, and that's all. Um, and um, the children who were abused has no rights to to prove that they have been abused and so on. It was a, a big scandal, and I spoke to all these grown-up children. They told me um, awful stories, uh, but nothing happened. That is a terrible story. And, of course, it's not unique to the Orthodox Church. I mean, we have heard similar stories also about other churches, but of course what matters is how you uh, try to deal with it and undo the wrongdoings. Um, Alex, you want to come in? Yeah, I think that the, this um, uh, you know, uh, this personal stories are, are revealing, of course, but I would say that uh, there might be some opposite situations when uh, uh, and that you can find really uh, of uh, uh, priests that are official priests that are a part of the official church structure, but still are uh, not uh, not identifying themselves with uh, with uh, uh, with the policy of of the patriarch, the policy of the Holy Synod, and the and 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 therefore not uh, uh, identifying uh, themselves with the war. Um, I would mention. Uh, uh, at least uh, this uh, kind of appeal, uh, this kind of letter, collective letter that has been. Uh, well, you mentioned already. If you if you didn't mention this, so it was um, in uh, on the on the first March of twenty twenty two, and uh, there was this appeal of priests to uh, reconciliation. Uh, it was called like that in in the internet, and uh, there were about three hundred signatures of uh, of the priests who would not support the uh, official position of the uh, Holy Synod and the Patriarch. Uh, although their text, uh, it's a very interesting text, and uh, uh, although it, it it was kind of also careful and not. Uh, Directly confronting, but they, uh, those who who, who, you know, uh, the, the, uh, who signed the text, they definitely uh, 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 proposed some kind of position and some kind of uh, um, uh, attitude uh, very different from the uh, official uh, uh, patriarchal or synodal one. They would say that. They would mention the choice of of the Ukrainians. The choice of the Ukrainians it was a very significant moment in in the whole text. But at the same time, they were uh, calling for uh, kind of mutual reconciliation. And uh, as far as I remember, maybe Xenia knows better that um, uh, uh, there was no direct, you know, kind of. Uh, reaction from official reaction from the church, from the yeah, and then uh, somebody from from church structure, from the higher church structures, or some some of the bishops would uh, call this letter a kind of a attempt to create a schism or something like that. So there was some kind of more or less uh, not official soft criticism on the whole thing, um, but. Uh, 
they were not punished. They were not the the priests, as far as I know. As far as I know, maybe there, there have been some developments later on that I don't know. But maybe Xenia would add. But at least that was a uh, kind of emotional, very quick reaction, uh, showing that there are priests, official priests, or uh, 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 within the church that have their own kind of uh, community with uh, uh, a sort of the opposition of so, sort of a different position from from the official one. Uh, well, the story of these um, open letters signed by priests, it begins in 2019 uh, during so-called uh, Moscow case, where when the activists uh, were arrested during the meetings, they realized supporting Navalny. Um, it was summer 19, uh, 2019, and the first letter appeared then. And all the priests who signed this letter um, were uh, invited to uh, some meetings to the local regional uh, departments of FSB. There were a very big interest from the special services towards these um, priests. And uh, the bishops reacted differently, but it was not, um, mm, there were no leaks to the press and so on. Then the second letter was, uh, there were one second letter during the Belarusian uh, protests in the, in summer 2020. And the third letter was uh, uh, in March 2022. Um, 300 of priests signed it. It's a, it's a huge number for, because they, they all knew that they were risking. It's a big risk. And there were, of course, there were consequences. There were some priests that, uh, who were defrocked. Uh, there were some, uh, again, uh, invitations to the FSB and so on. So it, you, you need to be very brave to sign this open letter. If you're a priest, you have family, uh, you have no support at all, no legal support, and you live in some small town in Russia. Well, there are, they are really brave people. That's uh, no question. But there are some bishops who sincerely support not only the patriarch, but even the more radical position of Russian nationalism. And they're the old spread by so-called Z-bloggers and so on. For example, Sava Tutunov, uh, they too, he also has a, his Telegram channel. Everyone can read what he writes. So we have all Google Translate because he writes in Russian, of course. And there were some, some others. But there are those who um, pretend to support in public all that Petrarch says, who don't protest. But like in Soviet times, in private, they say that they are against the war, that they support Ukraine, they understand everything, they are against Putin's regime, but they can do nothing. Uh, but they help uh, priests who are not in favor of the war. They help them to serve. They try to, well, to minimize the risks. They 
they pretend that they don't see, don't see that they don't um, pronounce all these words and the prayers uh, for the victory of Russian arms and so on. So the church is not um, is not homogene. There are a lot of different people there. Uh, so we'll see what will happen when all this ends. Yeah, so the church is not monolithic. That's uh, that, that's right. And I was I would add uh, one thing that um, uh, uh, you know interesting in this letter, open letter that was uh, signed. Uh, uh, I yes on the first of March actually first of March. So uh, a few days after the war started. Uh, yeah, they they are very brave people, and in interesting that before after that there were some communication with some of the uh, of the priests. Uh, I can refer to uh, other people's uh, uh, other people's work with uh, or communication with them. I myself uh, didn't make it. Um, so uh, uh, there was the question of referring. In, in liturgy and in prayer to the patriarch, to the name of patriarch, you know, there is this kind of canonical um, rule that uh, during the uh, liturgy and the prayer, at some point you refer to the, uh, the patriarch. And, and there was an interesting discussion uh, uh, among these people that they would continue to do this. They, they, they would continue to, re to refer to the patriarch, Ominat's Ima Patriarch, during the, the liturgy, uh, even though they would not agree with his policies and his position and things like that, because they are committed to the church and, and the, the church canon requires this. So the patriarch now, it's not patriarch Kirill uh, or, or a particular uh, person, you know, who is uh, leading this uh, kind of policy within the church, but it's uh, an institution. So institutionally, they want to continue to be a part of this institution and to even refer to the patriarch, even though they, uh, they don't. It, it's an interesting controversy, interesting uh, points that show, uh, shows uh, uh, their position and their belonging and their commitment to the church tradition. Thanks. And that is really encouraging to know that, that the church is not monolithic on, on that and that there are people who, who have other views, I remember years ago someone asked, "Is there anyone you can go and listen to if you, if you want to be in touch with religion rather than state via the Orthodox Church?" Happy to hear that those people do exist. Maybe we shouldn't advertise them any more co closely um, because recommendation from us would be a red flag to someone else and result in other interview uh, requests to raise people from FSB or, or, or other institutions like that. So let's not mention them, but be happy in, in the knowledge that they exist. We won't have time to go into history or Putin, but is there anything else you want to add to that conversation before I start the bookshelf? You know, I would, yeah, I would, I would only add that... Uh... Uh, the most when when we are talking about the um, uh, the future, right? The, uh, the, the what what the the outcomes, the possible outcomes of this uh, of the whole situation for the church. You know, now uh, uh, there is a complete. First of all, there is a complete 
uh, alliance uh, and uh, mutual legitimation of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Putin's regime, right? So they are so close that when uh, when when the regime uh, regime collapses, it will be certainly the case at some point. So there will be uh, much trouble for for the churches uh, as such. There is no way, uh, you know, away from this. You can you cannot go back, or you can. You are so so much connected to each other that. Uh, it's so even even uh, a few a few days ago uh, during this national holiday of the uh, uh, how do you call it uh, national unity right or the fourth they congratulated each other yeah uh, 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 Kirill congratulated congratulated Putin as a uh, national leader and Putin even gave him at uh, uh, this kind of uh, 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 the price uh, it's called. The price for the contribution to the strengthening promotion of the Russian nation. The price for the contribution to the strengthening and promotion of the Russian nation. Kirill received this, uh, received on the 4th of uh, November. So there is this kind of uh, complete, uh, you know, fusion in, in, in a way. Uh, although well, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say that it's a kind of equal union. Of course, uh, yeah, we know that the the the, uh, 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 the secular power, the Putin's regime, is much more powerful, and the church is just one of the legitimizing uh, mechanisms uh, for for the regime. Uh, and speaking about the future, I think that there will be kind of collapse, and there will be a big problem for the church itself, because even now they cannot have. Uh, 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 the um, uh, Archbishop uh, Arch Council, I guess, because because they don't have the quorum, they don't have the quorum because the half of the priests and uh, well one third from one third to one uh, uh, from, uh, to the, to the half of the priests of the of the churches and the and the, and the parishes um, are uh, just uh, in, uh, under the Ukrainian. Uh, uh, Ukrainian part, and that's they they don't uh, uh, control them. So uh, definitely, there will be uh, some some kind of. Uh, I I think that Kirill is n now and and the Holy Synod they do understand the uh, 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 the uh, that's uh, their situation is very hard. It's very hard indeed, but they don't. Uh, there is no way out. There is no way out. I totally agree with you, uh, but <laughs> I would add some optimistic note because uh, the Russian Orthodoxy will survive. It's uh, also truth, but in some other forms. And now we can't even imagine what these forms could be. Maybe it will be. A, a number of uh, nationalist sects, small churches, but maybe there will be a reasonable some force that will unite the um, true Christians that will build a new, a completely new church as a structure. We don't know, but the Russian Orthodoxy will survive somehow. Yeah, as, yeah I agree with as a tradition, yes, but institutionally, I guess. Uh, my uh, forecast is the split. Yes, Russian Orthodox Church will uh, will completely 
depend from what will happen to the regime when it ends? Well, there always is chance for self-purification and to ask for forgiveness and and new start. So I guess the Orthodox Church may may have to do some of that when when things change. Uh, for us, the time is soon away. Uh, we have one thing left to do, and that is our bookshelf segment. Uh, in, in ECFR podcast tradition, we end the podcast by asking what our guests are reading. Um, so, Alex, Xenia, please recommend us books. Uh, good if they are about religion, but they don't have to be. So, what is what? What would you recommend, Alex? I know you have something next to your computer. Yes, exactly. Uh, I still, yeah, I try. Uh, I try to read many things about many uh, topics, you know. But uh, mm, I will be trying to keep up to uh, what we were talking about. It's kind of uh, uh, showing the books that are uh, directly related to what we were discussing. The uh, the one is uh, Catherine Wenner book. Catherine Wenner is the uh, 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 professor. Uh, of uh, uh, anthropology and uh, uh, Penn State University, and she's spe specialist on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Ukrainian Orthodoxy, as an anthropology. So she does, uh, of course, describes. It's, it's a recent book, last year. It was uh, yes, November. Uh, well, I got I got it uh, uh, in November. It was published in November two thousand twenty-two. So during the war already after the war started, and but that's a kind of a previous research when she was uh, um, uh, visiting lots of parishes in Ukraine and kind of as an anthropologist, she uh, made the kind of a grassroots description of what's going on in, uh, in Ukrainian orthodoxy. Uh, and of course, it's very much related to what's uh, going, going on in the political sphere. So this is one. The second one, uh, a, a book of my colleague uh, in France, Cathy Rousset. Uh, it's called La Sainte Russie contre l'Occident, the Saint, Saint Russia, the Holy Russia against the uh, the West. And this is, of course, uh, already the book written after the war started, because uh, uh, if even we see the uh, uh, the sermons by Patriarch Kirill, this idea of the uh, 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 the war against the West, the Western kind of third party that are trying to split the Russian people and things like that, the Russians and Ukrainians, is, is the mainstream kind of narrative that Kirill is producing. So, uh, but this is uh, 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 the book about the relationship between the church and the state uh, uh, in Russia. And uh, finally, I permit myself to, to show my own article uh, in um, no, it's uh, no, it's not this one. Let me show this. Yeah, it's it, the journal is called the Journal of Orthodox Christian Studies. Uh, it's published in John Hopkins University in the, in the United States, and my article here is called "Unexpected Soviet Nostalgia?" Uh, uh, question mark complex memory of the Soviet past and the improbable democratic discourse in Russian orthodoxy. 
the idea was to show how uh, the, the Russian Orthodox, within the Russian Orthodox Church, we find this kind of reconsideration of the Soviet past uh, from uh, the, uh, well, reconsidering it not, not so much as a uh, period of repressions and uh, uh, persecutions, but as a kind of a great uh, uh, state and great nation, national glory and things like that. So that's the idea of the article. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. You are spoiling us. Three good things to read. Ksenia, what you are reading? Well, I would recommend uh, all that writes uh, Professor Nadezhda Kitsenko. She's a professor of Department of History at the Albany University in New York. She's a historian, but she gives, she gives uh, public lec lectures about the current state of affairs in Russian Orthodoxy and ev everything related to the relationship between church and the state. And um, she's a big specialist in uh, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine in the church sense. Uh, but her books are more historical. It's a history of Confession and the Russian Empire, for example. And uh, the second author that I would recommend is, uh, well, that's the last book I've read <laughs> on the topic, is Dmitry Adamsky, Russian Nuclear Orthodoxy. It's about, it's a um, review of how the relationship between uh, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian army in the big sense, and the Russian nuclear project um, developed, uh, have been developing throughout this uh, last uh, 30 years. And it's very interesting and uh, representative research. Thank you. Uh, my book recommendation will be a novel, um, not a new one, but also not very old. And it has Russia and religion in it, uh, though not exactly orthodoxy. That is, that is novel by Lyudmila Ulitskaya, Tanya Stein interpreter. That's a novel in letters, and as I understand, everything about the main hero, Tanya Stein, is actually true story. Some other uh, protagonists uh, are fantasy, but he actually did exist. He was a Jew from Belarus, or was it Poland? He lost his parents to Auschwitz when he was very young. Uh, then, in order to survive, he pretended to be a Pole, and he worked as interpreter for both Gestapo and then Kavidi. Uh, then, at one point, he had to escape and hide, and he was hiding in the attic of a Catholic monastery. Nuns hid him, and there he made a promise to himself that if he survives, he will become a Catholic monk. And he did survive. And after the war, he went to Krakow to ask to be accepted to monastery. And apparently there were two candidates, but one vacancy. And then the abbot of the monastery decided that, well, we have one Jew and one Pole. We need to take the Jew. Jews need to be helped along in Catholic faith. But Pole, however, he will find his way in the church anyway. The Pole was called Karl Weitzel, and they remained friends ever um, <clears throat> until uh, until their deaths. So 
It's a really touching story. Later on, Daniel Stein went to Israel to set up a Christian monastery in, in Israel. So it's it's highly topical given what's happening in Israel. Uh, also, the author Lyudmila Olitskaya, she has left Russia in 2022. Uh, I'm not even sure if she's in Germany or, or was she also in Israel um, because she she also tends to visit Israel quite a lot. In any case, she has accepted that her fate, as, as that of many Russian intellectuals before her, will also be um, to end up in, in exile. But to me, Daniel Stein has been a really special book. I mean, Ulitska is a good writer and there is a huge fan club. Daniel Stein is slightly different from her normal style. So many people who actually want to get mainstream Ulitskaya might even end up slightly disappointing when they read Daniel Stein. To me, though, Daniel Stein is one great Russian novel. I think that will uh, that will be next to Dostoevsky, Chekhov, and, and you name it. Uh, so do read. If you read Russian, read it in Russian. Uh, if you don't pick whatever language is available, not all translations uh, actually bring the atmosphere through as well as it is in the original, uh, but but still, uh, do read it. It's great literature. And thank you all for listening. We will post links to all the books and articles on the website, and you will hear from us uh, with uh, new scholars, new topics uh, before too long. 